Welcome to Reaching Your Peak, an educational storytelling mini-series of the Elk Talk podcast. This is Corey Jacobson, and today I'm going to be sharing a story from one of my previous do-it-yourself public land elk hunts, and then breaking down a strategy or a tactic that was instrumental in the success of that hunt. Reaching Your Peak is brought to you by Peak Refuel. If you're looking for delicious freeze-dried meals that are made with 100% real ingredients, including premium USDA meats, you've probably already heard of Peak Refuel. Their meals have nearly twice as much protein as the competition, which is important for fueling your body in the backcountry. There's no fillers, no empty calories, just premium nutrition that truly meets the needs of elk hunters. And the taste is second to none. My personal favorites are their homestyle chicken and rice and the beef stroganoff, but they have a huge selection of other incredible meals like chicken alfredo, biscuits and gravy, chicken coconut curry, sweet pork and rice, mountain berry granola, and a whole lot more. If you want to taste the difference, visit peakrefuel.com and use the promo code ELKTALK to save 15% and get free shipping on your next order. Well, welcome back to another uh, episode of the mini-series, Reaching Your Peak. And I know it's been a while since we did one of these episodes, and I apologize. It's been uh, it's been elk season, but elk seasons are kind of winding down here and closed in most places, except for a couple of select late-season hunts, which I know Randy is uh, looking forward to. And I've got Randy on here with us again. Uh, appreciate you helping out with uh, drawing some of the details and everything out of these stories, Randy. Well, I, I wasn't there and I didn't live it, Corey. So I got to ask all these questions because the listener probably has just as many, if not more questions than I do. And I actually get to see you on video as we're doing this. So uh, I'll try not to be a nuisance, but I'm interested in hearing this story because when you told me about what your what the story was going to be you paused and sighed a lot <laughs> and i'm like all right there's got to be a lot to this story if Corey is pausing and sighing that much so it's I'm it's a good story a good story with some good lessons you know and i think that's uh with elk seasons being closed now's a good time to kind of look back and evaluate what we did right and uh what we did wrong and i think there was a lesson in this story that i'm about to share that uh has maybe changed a little bit of the way that i uh i proceed with hunts now well so can, uh, can i make the assumption this is an archery hunt this is an archery hunt yeah in what state idaho can this, i make that this, assumption no this was in oregon Ooh. so Ooh. yeah all right. yeah huh. Well, so, I'm all ears now. Yeah. Let's hear it. All right. Well, I appreciate you uh, joining me here today and uh, helping get some of those details out. And I know you'll have a lot of input once we get to the uh, to the lesson learned. So with that, let's uh, jump into another elk hunting story. So the year on this hunt, Randy, was 2014, I believe. So about 10 years ago. And as I mentioned, it took place in the state of Oregon. 
And this was a controlled hunt. So I had mm. been putting in for points, which Oregon used to have a lot of over-the-counter opportunity for non-residents. Uh, now it's most of the east side. I think all of the east side is controlled. So still fairly for, easy to draw. Yeah, yeah. Still, I mean, fairly easy to draw, but you have to choose now the unit you're going to hunt in where it used to be you could get a tag for the you know an over-the-counter tag general tag in Oregon was good for just about the whole east side and uh the whole west side as well for Roosevelt but that's changed so when I applied I had uh, I think I drew with 10 points 10 or 11 points so it was a decent unit Mm. but again it's Oregon so aside from (laughs) uh two or three of the really special controlled hunts their draw hunts weren't all uh, all that phenomenal but i drew a tag and uh, my buddy david burdett drew a tag at the same time so we hunted together and donnie accompanied us and uh, videoed the the hunt but we hunted you know and i think when you're looking at controlled hunts you're always trying to find that best week and you know is it moon phase later in the season you know you might have a good moon phase but are they have they been pressured you know are you hunting the peak of the rut are you hunting just before the fall equinox you know a lot of things there and so with it being a a controlled hunt that took 10 points i really analyzed and i went for the later part of the season in fact i think we hunted the last eight days of the season uh and in Mm -hmm. oregon that year I'm thinking it ended sometime around the 24th, 25th of September. So we were hunting sometime around the 17th through the the 24th. So you don't have that excuse if you didn't fill a tag. Well, we don't have the excuse of, you know, we were hunting early or it was post-rut. You know, looking at it and from, uh, from our analysis there, it was, it should have been peak rut. And uh, in Oregon, my experience there has been the elk don't bugle really good early. And so especially on the east side, you know, that first week, even into the second week of season, sometimes you're hunting bulls that are bachelored up, uh, not very responsive to calls. So we definitely wanted to hunt closer to the, the end of the season for for that purpose. What we didn't take into account was these elk had been pressured for a good three weeks before that. And even though it was a controlled hunt and even though it was a fairly good controlled hunt, uh, the elk had been pressured. And so we were hearing some bugles, but man, trying to get those elk to, to come into the calls, they were just wary. You know, they'd been pressured. I, there was one bull that we chased, I think for two days that had an arrow sticking out of his neck um so i mean they'd been shot they'd been shot at they'd been called in and winded and we were we were struggling to find elk that were acting like a a peak rut elk especially in a controlled unit so we had to resort to you know we kind of went away from a lot of our our pre-scouting because i'd been over there and checked out a lot of the roads a lot of the roads are open during the summer and then they closed during season. So we took mountain bikes. Uh, this was before e-bikes. And I don't even know what the regulations would have been if if we would have had e-bikes. But we had regular old leg-assisted pedal mountain bikes. And uh, had a trailer 
that we piled all of our gear in and thought we're going to pedal back into some of these areas six or seven miles and set up a camp. And that all was a great idea. But what I didn't know is you get 50, 60 pounds, 100 pounds in a trailer behind a mountain bike, and it goes okay on flat ground, but you get on even the the slightest of an incline, and <laughs> they're tough pedaling. <laughs> so we, uh, we, we did that the first day or two, and then we realized this isn't working. We're going to have to day hunt and, you know, just pedal back in four or five miles and hunt. And if there's nothing, go back out and go to a new gated road. And we did that, but what we found was a lot of other people had the same ideas. And even, you know, people could hike in four or five miles on a gravel road and reach some of those areas. And by the time we got in that far, that road had a gate on the other end that was just as close. So we struggled to get away from people. And we had to go to plan B, C, D and realized we're going to have to find little hidden gems because any road that has a gate on it pretty much within 10 miles you're out on the other side of it. And so getting into the middle, which is what we thought would be great, was what everybody else had in mind as well. Was so this some, mostly public land or was there a lot of private land also? Uh, it was mostly public uh, with some timber company, which was 100% open access. Okay. They just gated their roads. So mm-hmm. it was open to hike on. Uh, I think a lot of it you couldn't camp on. So that kind of thwarted some of our you know, our plans to go back in five or six miles and camp because you get back in there and there was no actual state or national forest land to camp on. So what we ended up finding was there were some little pockets that, you know, they were just, we'd drive for 15, 20 miles on a road and there's one little pocket, one little drainage, one little timber patch. And we started hitting those and finding some success in finding elk that hadn't been pressured. Because you get into these areas where you could drive down a road, an open road for 10 miles, and there's eight or 10 gated roads off each side of it. There's trucks parked at every one of the gates. There's camps, you know, at every one of the gates. And so you're going into there, even if you wanted to hike in a good distance, you're still hunting pressured elk. So we started looking for just these obscure little pockets and started finding some, some good luck in, uh, in finding elk that weren't as pressured and were a little bit more apt to come into calls. Hmm. With that, there was typically only one bull and four or five cows in those little pockets. So (laughs) once you had that hunt and and messed it up, uh, had to go find (laughs) another one. And so we got some, uh, we got some advice from a guy that we ran into that had tagged out earlier in the season. And he said, there's a chunk of private over here that is completely inaccessible. They don't allow any hunting on it, but you can hike through along the fence line and it's eight or nine miles through there. And what we found was if you get right in the middle, you know, four, four and a half miles back in there, all the elk had been pushed onto the private but the best feed was still on the public side. So they're feeding off of the private onto this little, you know, ridge basically right in the middle on the public. And if you could catch them out there, you know, they were getting pressured, but they weren't as bad as, as where they were living on the public. So that was our plan. We went back in there. uh, I think we had about three days of the season left at that point. We set up camp uh, down along the, the road 
And then the first night we hiked back in there as far as we could get, which was about three miles before we realized we didn't have much time to to get all the way back in there. So we made a hunt there. We did see some elk, but just like the guide told us, they were all coming off the private right before dark. They were feeding out this ridge that had been logged and then, uh, then it got dark. So our plan for the next morning was to go back in there where we had seen them and kind of start our hunt there and try to follow them up onto the, the ridge where they drop over into the private. So Burdett had, uh, I think he had tagged out at that point, one of our little pockets we had found. Uh, I'd called in a, a six point that actually came in quiet and actually we heard it raking was how we had spotted it. So he had shot a bull and he was just tending camp for us. So Donnie and I went back in and we hiked hard, got back into to where the elk had been the night before. And then we got into a couple bulls that were bugling and it was that chasing game. They were going up through the logging up to the ridge and they were heading for that private. We were trying to keep the wind good and get up there before they crossed over. And so Donnie how, and I, how many, how many miles are we talking here? So you leave camp way before daylight. Yep. And you hike uh, in four we got in, miles? Uh, we were probably about three, three and a half miles uh, when it started getting daylight and we started getting into some elk. And they were up on the ridge, probably five, 600 yards in front of us. We could tell they were moving, you know, as we're looking up the hillside, they're to our right and they were moving to our left and the fence line, you know, we're kind of walking parallel with the fence line. We're a good half mile off of it, uh, but we're walking parallel to it and it's on our left side. So as we're looking up, the elk are to our right, the fence is to our left and the elk are moving from our right to our left. So we, you know, we kind of have to, we're trying to cut them off there, but we also have to pay attention to the wind, which it's coming down. So we're down below them on a hillside moving up. So everything's really good, but I also knew, Hey, these elk, they know the game and they're going to get up there on that ridge and they're going to cross if we don't hurry. So we're going along and all of a sudden I look back and, my camera guy, Donnie, who didn't have a tag, is uh, nowhere to be seen. And I've been kind of going, you know, when I'm bugling, he can keep tabs of, of where I am and keep up. But where I've been kind of going quietly, trying to get up ahead of the elk, Donnie's uh, struggling to, to keep up and know where I'm at. Mm-hmm. So I sat there for a few minutes waiting and calling, and, and he didn't show up, and I thought, I've got to go. So... I bombed up to the ridge and got there just as the big herd went across in front of me and dropped over going down onto where the private was. And since I didn't catch them there, the thermals are still going down the hill and they're dropping down into the private. So there's no way I could chase after them and have good wind and catch up. So my, uh, my two options were hunt the elk, the straggler elk that are coming up behind them. And then uh, once the wind switches, drop down and see if I could catch any on the public side. So that's what I did. I, uh, so where, where, where's Donnie now? Lost him. I have no idea where he's at. <laughs> and he doesn't have a bugle tube. So, you know, my only hope is he could hear me bugling and show up eventually. But that didn't happen. Oh. Uh, oh. Where I'm at on this ridge, I did have reception. Uh, but we didn't have any reception, cell reception from there until we got back to camp. So I sent a couple texts and said, hey, I'm up on the main ridge, uh, but didn't hear anything back from Donnie. 
So I hunted the, the morning out. Uh, I did catch one straggler that was quiet. He came by underneath me. And by the time I tried slipping down to where he was, he'd got in front of me and got my wind and bombed over towards the private. And, you know, I don't like hunting right on the private. I like to leave a little buffer there. So I'm trying to stay back and not push them, you know, leaving, I'm leaving a gap there of about a half a mile between where I'm hunting and where the private is. So when the wind switches, I have a a little area there I can go down and hunt. Mm -hmm. And so I sat there, the wind finally switched, you know, it was 11 o'clock in the morning or so. I haven't heard a bugle for quite a while. I've gone back in probably another mile, mile and a half at this point. So I'm right in the middle. I'm four and a half miles, maybe five miles from camp uh, to this ridge. And I'm sitting there kind of thinking about, okay, tomorrow morning is the last morning I have to hunt. The hunt ends that day, but we have to break camp by midday and be headed home. So I've got that afternoon and the next morning to hunt. Uh, it's been a tough hunt. We've hunted pressured elk and I'm starting to, to get into that. Woe is me. I should throw in the towel here. And <laughs> so I'm literally sitting on this ridge and I'm picking M&Ms out of the trail mix and uh, throwing the peanuts and the raisins away and just eating the M&Ms. And I texted my wife and I said, you know, this goes back to our, our last episode, which I talked about perseverance. But I, I texted her and said, this just hasn't been a good hunt. You know, it's been a tough hunt. And uh, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking, should I just take down camp today and come home? Because, you know, the reality is, the evening hunt's going to be tough. They aren't coming off of the private until right at dark. And in the morning, I've got basically one chance to catch them. And I kind of know where they're going now, but just trying to, to ambush elk as they come by on a ridge heading into private is going to be tough. Yeah. And so I sent her a text basically saying, it's a tough hunt. I don't think I'm going to get anything. I might just go back to camp and take down camp and head home tonight. And she replied and said something to the effect of, um, you know, nice attitude, loser. You aren't going to kill an elk that way. <laughs> and so as I'm sitting there, I, I literally, I look down, my M&Ms are gone. I get this text from her and out of nowhere, the six point bull goes walking by below me. The wind's good. And he's just bebopping his way back onto private. And this is, you know, at this point, it's midday, one o'clock, somewhere in there. My God, they're still over here. They're still moving around. There's still elk here. And I thought, all right. So I pick up my pack, I grab my bow and I try to slip in on him and just doesn't work out. He moves down the ridge and gets on the, the hillside that goes onto the private and disappears into the timber there. But it gave me hope. I'm like, you know what? There's still elk here. And even if they aren't talking, they're still here. I just need to find one that'll talk. And so I walked back up on the ridge and I let out a bugle two o'clock in the afternoon and a bull answers from probably a half mile into the private. So close to probably a mile away. And I thought, well, he answered me two o'clock in the afternoon. That's a good sign. So I start making my way down the ridge and I get probably 200 yards away from the, from the fence line. And I thought, I'm not getting any closer. I can see the fence line from where I am. And I bugle again, and the bull answers just immediately right back. And at this point, he's probably 800 yards away. And so I stand there for a second, and within a minute, the bull answers again, and he's 400 yards away. 
I thought, well, he's coming towards me. This is a good sign. So I bugle and he answers and he's probably a hundred yards away from the fence line at this point. And I thought he's coming to me. He, he's like coming to me on a string and he's coming fast. So I start scrambling, looking for a good place to set up. I find a good setup and I look down and I see the fence line and I see him get to the fence and without even hesitating, he springs over the fence onto the public side and he's coming right up the ridge, right where I'm set up. And he came by like he had never heard an elk bugle before. Like he had never heard a cow call before. He was just fire in his eyes. And, you know, he was the bull. He was the one bull that read the script. And I actually had trouble getting him to stop when he came by at 20 yards. Because he was just on a string. He was going up to where I bugled last. And even, even me cow calling right there, he's like, I don't care right now. I'm on a mission. I'm going up to find this bull that bugled 200 yards up the hillside up here. And I finally hammered him with a cow call when I'm at full draw. And he stopped. I shot, made a great shot, you know, kind of uphill, but hit him perfect center of the body, quartering slightly away. And he ran about 60 yards, went up the hill turned like he was going to try to go back over to the private and made it about 60 yards and died right there. So really cool. I walked up there, you know, it's one of those lessons learned that man, had I thrown in the towel an hour ago, this would have never happened. I would have just thought this is a tough hunt. There's no elk that want to want to play the game, but he played the game. So I walk up to him and realize he had just come out of a wallow fully immersed in mud, like, (laughs) literally i'm grabbing his leg and holding his front leg up and mud is dripping off of his leg onto the ground and he is covered from the base of his ears to the tip of his tail in (laughs) thick mud so if you've ever shot an elk that's been in a wallow before you know if they lay down on one side it's like oh this is a nightmare i had never shot one that had been fully immersed in mud like that by myself I, Donnie's uh, still not showing up yet. Donnie hasn't shown up, but it's two in the afternoon. I haven't seen him since eight thirty <laughs> that morning, so I know that he's most likely gone back to camp. So I go up to the ridge. I realize I've got a, a chore in front of me, but I also realize I'm four and a half miles from camp, and I don't want to have to pack this elk out by myself. So I get to the ridge top and I send a text, and I, you know, it's something simple like, "Hey, if you ha- if you get this message." bowl down, bring pack frames, follow the fence line four and a half miles in. (laughs) And I thought I can see the fence line from where the elk is. So if they follow the fence line, I'm going to hear them coming and, and we'll, we'll meet up. So even if they got the text, then they being, you know, I'm, I'm assuming Donnie's back at camp and he and Burdett are back at camp. And so I'm hoping that there's two of them. I've got my pack. I know Donnie will have his pack and then hopefully Burdett will bring a, a pack frame. So I go back and I, I know it's going to take him at least a couple hours. So I get the elk kind of propped up. My hands are, you know, I'm up to mud in my, up to my elbows, just moving this elk around by myself, just getting him on the hillside where I can get him cut up. I get started in and the first cut up the back of the leg, mud's just dripping off of the hide yeah. right onto the meat. And I'm, you know, there's, you know how it is when you have somebody there to hold the hide back, you're still getting, you're still getting some dirt and hair on it with it dripping with mud like that. It was a disaster, but 
I did the best I could, got the, the first side skinned all the way off. So I took the skin off the whole side before I even started making any cuts, just so I could keep it as clean as possible. Cleaned yeah. it up, cut the quarters off, cut the all the meat and everything, moved it up and uh, set it in the shade. Pulled the hide back over, flipped it over and had to repeat the process on the other side and uh, eventually got it cut up. It probably took me two and a half hours, maybe even three hours at that point. Got it cut up all by myself on a a hillside on a hill. It it was as good of a spot as you could hope to do it considering the circumstances. So it, uh, you know, I'm, I'm carrying these quarters up into the shade and up onto the ridge realizing, man, this is a big bull. It was a, you know, a nice mature six point bull, but it had a pretty big body on it. And mm-hmm. I'm thinking, you know, I'm glad, glad, uh, glad to get the meat, but at the same time, I really hope Donnie and Burdette show up because <laughs> even one trip out of here is, is not going to be fun knowing I have to come back in, uh, just, you know, how it is packing by yourself. So this is before I carry any kind of trekking poles or anything. So I'm up at the ridge and I've got my pack opened up there and I'm starting to look at the pieces of the puzzle. And I'm thinking, okay, if I carry this much out by myself, they come back in, we can get this much. What's the best, best way to do it. And about then I hear a whistle down the hillside and Burdett and Donnie have showed up. So they come up there and we look at it. I'm like, okay, we're going to do this in one trip. What's the best oh, no. way now that we, we do it? We've got three people. One trip's the way to do it. Oh, this makes me hurt. Thank Yeah. So, uh, yeah, well, this is, this is, uh, you know, this is where there's a lot of lessons, perseverance, you know, waiting till the very end, sticking it out till the very end. That that's yep. one of them. We talked about that mm-hmm. though, in the last episode, uh, skinning an elk by yourself there were a lot of lessons learned there skinning an elk that's been in a in a wallow but uh the the real lesson that i want to share is uh is what what i learned over the next three or four hours when it comes to elk hunting success confidence is critical and confidence in my gear and my equipment is something i'm just not willing to compromise and that's why I shoot a Prime bow. As a mechanical engineer, when I first saw the technology Prime was designing into their bows, I was intrigued. Cam lean had always been an issue on other bows I'd shot, which made tuning the bows and ultimately getting consistent arrow flight nearly impossible. But four shots into my first Prime bow, it was tuned and my arrows were flying perfectly. The draw cycle was smooth and the back wall was solid. And they didn't stop there. In the years since I've started shooting a prime bow, they've added center shot technology, which allows the bow to lock on the target and keeps my pins from wandering around. They've also recently designed a new cam that completely eliminates cam lean that was previously caused by the offset cable design. Prime bows are continually leading the way when it comes to new technology and technology that makes a difference, not just some marketing gimmick that a marketing department can use to advertise a new model. There's no doubt that the stability of my Prime bow has improved my accuracy, extended my range, and increased my confidence. To learn more about Prime stability or to shoot one for yourself, visit your local bow shop or go to g5prime.com. And now, 
back to reaching your peak. Oh, is this a, like a hunting partner lesson or is <laughs> it a... We, uh, yeah, there, having a good hunting partner is, is always a, a plus, especially when it comes time to pack out. But uh, that beyond having a good hunting partner and beyond having help on the pack out, it's, uh, it's good to know your limitations. And I think yeah. this was a trip where I would say I was in my prime physically. I was in good shape, but I learned there's still limitations. So yeah. the way we divvied it out, Burdett is, uh, he made it in there. And that in itself was a miracle because, <laughs> well, so, so he, uh, he played college football. He's got bad knees. He's got really bad ankles. And he's been, at this point, he had been to the doctor multiple times. Doc, what are my options? And they said, yeah. aside from fusing your ankle, there are no options. You are bone on bone. We need to go in and fuse it, but you're going to lose mobility. So he toughed it out on this hunt. And he was in tears a grown man in tears from physical pain multiple times. Uh, so he came in and, you know, bless his soul for making it in there, but he wasn't going to carry much out. He took a front shoulder and we had to beg him not to take more because he wanted to, to do as much as he could. Uh, but he took a front shoulder and he, he headed out and he was just walking the, there's a good trail basically along the fence line all the way back out. Uh, and it was about four and a half miles. So he took, took the front shoulder and he headed out. He's like, you guys are going to catch me. I'm just going to go. So Donnie and I are left there to divvy everything else out. And Donnie took a hind quarter and half the neck meat, half the back strap. Uh, and that was a good, you know, heavy load. If I, if I had to guess, it was probably, uh, he also took some of my gear. I had some extra gear there. So I'm doing Probably. the math here. Uh, yeah. we're, we're, we still got to account for the other half of the back strap, the tenderloins, the trim, a front quarter, and a hind quarter. Yep. And so in uh, in this picture I have in front of me that I'm looking at, that's uh, exactly what I had. Two quarters. Um, basically half an elk. Plus, I've got my bow strapped on the back of that. I've got all my gear still in my, my bag on there. And when you get that much weight, you can't get all the weight right up against your back. So in this picture here, you know, it's sticking out quite a ways. I'm leaned over, uh, you know, there's no standing upright at this point. So we start the trek out and it's not bad. I mean, yeah, it's, it's heavy. It's, it's grinding, but there's no uphill. It's a fairly good downhill on a ridge and it's manageable. And we go about a mile like that. And it's, you know, I'm, 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 I'm going from taking the load on my shoulders until my shoulders and neck can't take it anymore. And then I lift the pack up and I cinch it on my hips as tight as I can. And I, you know, alleviate some of the, the weight on the shoulder straps and then I go a ways until my hip flexors are like, we can't take another step. And then I, you know, I relieve it on the hips and take it on the shoulders and I'm just bouncing back and forth and we go about a mile. And then we've got this really steep downhill to go. 
and I start down it and I hear Donnie behind me let out a little yelp and I turned around just to see him legs buckle and he hits the ground and slides a ways down the hill and I'm thinking oh, this isn't good and his knees are really bothering him at that point and we make it to the bottom of that hill and then we have to turn and go up a hill my oh. legs are jello at this point and we're probably no only a mile and a half into the four and a half mile hike and it's starting to get dark uh, we took the picture I'm looking at here with a beautiful sunset behind us just before we started <laughs> down the down the first hill. We're down at the bottom. We've got to go uphill. And that's when I realize my leg muscles can't carry a whole lot more weight than this. Like it's yeah. four or five steps and then stopping. Oh. Four or five steps and then stopping. And we make it up to the top of the hill. And then it's another nice ridge where we can go you know, gradual downhill for a ways. And we make it to the, about the three mile mark. And by now it's probably nine thirty, ten o'clock. It's dark. We've had headlamps on for a while and we have a choice to make. We can either yeah. climb up the last hill, which is a good hill, and then go down the steep hill and then hit the flat. And it's flat for the last three quarters of a mile back to camp. Or we can pack the packs up this draw to our left, and it's uphill a little ways, and it's probably three quarters of a mile, but we can drop the packs there and hike the road. There's a, an old logging road back to camp, up the steep hill, down the steep hill, and then hit the, the main road back to camp, and then bring the mountain bikes and the trailer back in and pack the elk out on mountain bikes and trailers. And since my legs were, I mean, I... I I can't explain, you know, it's calves are wiped out, thighs, quads mm -hmm. are wiped out, hamstrings are wiped out, hip flexors are wiped out, shoulders are just knotted up and feel like a, you know, a, a solid mass of muscle that's just not able to, to flex and take what it should be taken. So we thought, you know what, three quarters of a mile sounds a lot better than a mile and a half. Let's do it. Okay. So we, we, packed up to where we hit the road we uh, dropped the packs and then we hit the the road without any weight on our back which was an absolute joy yeah you had and, to feel like you were flying once you got that weight off your back you know typically you would at this point i think we were so exhausted we didn't feel like we were <laughs> flying but we felt like we can at least make it it's manageable you know, your muscles just aren't oxygenating like they should. So we're still only going 30 yards without a pack and we're having to stop and catch our breath. And then we made it to the yeah. top and the downhill was pretty good. Hiked the road back. At this point, though, I'm probably 11 miles, 12 miles into the day, you know, and a good almost four miles of it was with a heavy pack. So we get back and... I'm like, let's just get it done tonight. Let's take the mountain bikes back in there, get it back to camp, and we can just sleep in tomorrow. So we grab the mountain bikes at camp and the trailer, and we pedal them up the road. We get to the gate. We go up the hill, which I know, you know, going up the hill isn't going to be a lot of fun with the weight in the back. Then we go down the hill. We get to the to the meet, and we put everything in this in this trailer that goes behind the mountain bike. Well, Pedaling is not an option up the hill. Nope. And then I realize pushing the bike 
with that much weight in the trailer isn't an option. Not good. So Donnie left his bike down at the bottom, and the two of us were each of us on each side of the bike. We each have a hold of the handlebar, and we were basically doing a bench press, a, an overhead shoulder press, taking two steps and then stopping, and then pressing it, and then stopping. And we had to do this all the way up to the top, to the saddle. And then went back down. I think I offered to go back down and get his bike. He may have gotten it. I don't remember. We got his bike up there. We're at the top and we're thinking, okay, it's clear sailing here. And we start down. And with a lot of weight in a trailer that's attached to the frame of a mountain bike and it's attached low, it attaches down or actually this one was attached right under the seat. So it's attached high on the frame. Brakes don't work. You know, those, those mountain <laughs> bikes, those little tires. It, <laughs> it's not going to stop that. So I get started down the hill and I go about 20 yards and start applying the back brake and it's not doing anything other than skidding. So I apply a little bit of front brake and the next thing I know, the trailer lifts the bike in the air with the front tire still on the ground and it throws me over the top and... So I walk the mountain bike out <laughs> down the hill, <coughs> extending every bit of force I can against the bike to keep it on the ground and extending the brakes. I'm basically trying to do a controlled skid the whole way down the mountain on this gravel road. Donnie's waiting for me down at the gate to make sure I make it fine. I finally get down there and then we get on the flat and ride it back to camp. At this point, it's two o'clock in the morning something like that and uh i knew the pack was heavy i i kept yeah. my pack kind of together mm-hmm. and i'm not one that that likes to throw out numbers i'm not one that likes to say you know shot distances or scores or pack weights because a when you when you have something that is impressive nobody believes it anyway yeah. b Half the people are going to hear it and say, well, I've done twice that much. You know, they're going to compare their loads to yours. (laughs) C, it gives people a reference point to realize just how stupid you are. (laughs) But I weighed this pack. The pack was 167 pounds. Oh, my gosh. I I don't think I have ever had more weight on my back for a farther distance. I've, I've probably had one, maybe two pack trips that were just as heavy, but nowhere near as short and nowhere near, you know, the, or nowhere near as long. They were much shorter and it didn't have the extreme downhill and then uphill. Yeah. Yeah. I've always thought, you know, (laughs) I could pack my weight. And at this point I was, I was probably around 175 pounds. So I'm basically packing my body weight on that i didn't recover from that as quickly as i as i usually do my lay my knees ached my shoulders ached you know and it wasn't just a couple days and need to stretch out Mm -hmm. there was some there was some legitimate pain that came with that pack trip and i think it was about that time that i realized two trips is better than one up to that point, I'd always said, I, I can suffer through one trip and I'd rather just make one trip because I don't want to have to turn around and hike back in. Since yeah. that time, if we have three able body people to pack, we can distribute it and keep the weight around 100 to 120 pounds max. 
and that's it's a lot but it's doable you know if i train for it and i'm in good shape it's doable i still prefer a a 70 pound pack but we can do it so i i think you know the lesson learned from that is two people don't pack out an elk in one trip anymore unless it's like a half mile but over distance it's just it's it's not it's not smart um three people up to a point we can get it out we did not bone this elk out which you know in hindsight would have saved on my pack probably around 25 pounds i'd guess you know between the front leg and the hind leg still in there um 20 to 25 pounds probably um so i could i could have shaved off a little what i gained in leaving the bone in though was some structure and rigidity and in that much meat had i put the meat just in a game bag boned out there would have been some issues there with with uh, rigidity in the pack so some pros and cons there i i would say without doubt that was the most brutal pack out i've ever had the most weight over the farthest distance uh, you know, I look at Alaska a couple of years ago and mm-hmm. that was nasty. That was, that was the most extreme pack out I've ever had, uh, just as far as over three days, you know, of yeah. packing meat, but we were smart and we shuttled the meat and we never took more than, I think the heaviest pack I probably had in Alaska was 70 or 80 pounds. Uh, yeah. it's just, you know, we were on straight up and down vertical cliffs that were wet. And so that, that would get the the prize for the most extreme pack. But this pack in Oregon 10 years ago was the most brutal pack that I think I've ever had. And I think I, I learned from that one that uh, there are limitations and uh, it's probably not smart to, to push those limitations and to find out what your limitations <laughs> are. There's probably a, a, a factor of safety somewhere around 50 or 60% that uh, is probably a good target to aim for. Yeah. I, I would have been like Burdett. I'm like, ah, I got a front shoulder here. You got some trim I'll throw in. All right. I'll make two trips because yeah. I'm still going to, I'm still going to be able to walk after two trips, but after one trip, even with not even your entire load, I wouldn't be able to walk. Yeah. I, I, I'd be like laid up. Yeah. And, and I, had I, he, had he not been there, I still think Donnie and I would have tried to one trip it. I think uh, Donnie would have taken that other quarter and I would have had to take some of the uh, excess scrap meat there. It would have been, you know, that front shoulder, 55 pounds, 65 pounds, somewhere in there probably that, that was there. So Burdett taking it saved us. Mm-hmm. I think though, I don't think we would have made it up that first hill with that load. So we probably would have dropped half the load and made two trips from there. So we may have gotten smart halfway through the trip. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I, I don't know if Burdett carrying that, that extra quarter out was a good thing or a bad thing. Uh but well, I, I'm surprised an engineer who who studied physics could not anticipate the problem with all the heavy weight on just the mere little brakes on a mountain bike. Yeah, that that was uh, that that wasn't I don't know. The packing was bad. The mountain bike portion in the trailer 
just added insult to injury. <laughs> it, it really did. You know, we were, we were exhausted from what we had and I was just thinking, yeah, you know, we aren't going to be able to just pedal this trailer up the hill, but once we get it up to the top of the hill, it's going to, that's going to be the ticket. And yeah. it wasn't, it was, uh, it was a lot of work, an awful lot of well, work. You, you were talking about your lessons learned in that. As the observer listening to this and watching your body language at the time when you were cringing and like, uh, uh, the lesson learned for me is one selection of hunting partners is really important because <laughs> if you didn't have really good hunting partners, they would have got to you and said, Hey, Corey, you're on your own, man. We'll see you back at camp. I'll, I'll maybe carry a backstrap out. It so. would have been really easy to delete a text. And be like, I never got your text, man. I'm sorry. Yeah. Or we walked up the fence line. We we didn't find you. What what the heck? Yep. Uh, another lesson learned that, and I don't know if this played into it, but I never really give myself a hard date for when I got to be home. So that means if I shoot something the last afternoon, if it takes me two days to get it out, it takes me two days to get it out. And I'm not going to be like you and, and pack those kind of loads and pack them at two, three in the morning and, and that kind of foolishness. Now, there was a time when I was 35 where I, I didn't get to that level of, of extreme, but I did some things where it's like, you know, these are artificial confinements I've placed on myself. <laughs> Let's not do this anymore. Yeah. Well, that, that, that's, a lesson learned. The other lesson learned for me listening to this, I see it regularly when I bump into somebody out in the hills and we got a string of six llamas or four <laughs> llamas and we're six or seven miles back there. And I run into a guy who's solo elk hunting and he's like, I, I just want to kill my first elk so bad. And I hope he does. But it's like, have you ever seen one of these things when it's laying on the ground? Yeah. And you're going to do this by yourself? Hey, if, if we're going out that day and we got room, we'll take some of it on the llama for you. But you, you are... Don't count on it. <laughs> right. So sometimes the point of that is enthusiasm and drive can sometimes get you in a pickle. Yep. And uh, yeah, you'd get that elk out all by yourself in, in the instances I'm referring to. But if you got really hot weather... You got a lot of other things. If you're in grizzly country and that's going to be hanging there for two days while you're shuttling, it's like, you know, there's a lot of reasons why a six mile pack out on your own is just a bad idea. It's a bad idea. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, and, and I think I was gung ho at that time. This was a controlled hunt. I wouldn't say I was desperate, but I was willing to do whatever it would take to, to kill an elk. Um, that's why I went in as far as I did. And I knew that's, you know, I had to get in that far to find unpressured elk or less pressured elk. I knew the pack and you got to understand this is not, uh, Wyoming backcountry, Idaho backcountry, like we do, you know, it's, it's not as brutal and extreme mm -hmm. up and down, but there was enough steep down <laughs> and steep up that yeah. it just, the, the relative, decline on that ridge back to camp it just prolonged the suffering we had already been through uh, so i mean it four and a half miles well, probably only a mile and a half of it was extreme 
the rest of it was manageable as far as the terrain. Uh, so that, that saved us a little bit. But it also, I think, you know, like I said, there was some, some parts of it that we probably, had it been worse, we probably would have been smarter and made two trips. And yeah. because it was just right there on that verge of this is almost not possible, but it's just barely possible. We're going to go ahead and keep doing it here. Uh, but I, I learned from that, that there are considerations that have to be made. And yeah. I've learned that it's probably smarter to make two trips with less weight, you know, more distance, less weight. Um, like you said, you know, those limitations as far as time, we did have some restrictions or we had to get it out, but we could have easily taken half of it out that night and come back in the next morning and brought the rest of it out and still had plenty of time. We just wanted yeah. to get it done and get it over with, you know, suffer uh, greater lengths for less time, uh, I think has changed now to suffer less lengths over more time. And uh, as I sit here and say that, I've got a, I've got an MRI scheduled on my neck <laughs> from, a, from an unrelated injury that I have no doubt there is some residual effects of carrying too many heavy packs on my knees, on my back, on my neck, on my shoulders that, uh, you know, the, the aggregate adds up and uh, yeah. you, you take a spill when you're almost 50 on a motorcycle and end up with a neck injury that won't seem to heal. And I, I look back to all those heavy packs and wonder how many of those uh, contributed to the state of my spinal condition <laughs> well you know this is something that didn't happen to you but it's a risk factor that i always consider and i know my crew thinks i sound like grandpa when i start fretting and worrying about this stuff but th this is not lineal this is like logarithmic <laughs> or exponential exponential yeah but the the odds of a physical injury a blown acl uh, blown out ankle, uh, you know, a back injury go up ridiculously once those pack weights start getting over about 60 to 70 pounds. Yep. So you guys lucked out that nobody blew out a knee or Burdett didn't blow out one of his ankles or you didn't, you know, that, that a lot of people, you know, they're saying they call it herniated disc, Corey. <laughs> you know, back surgeons and, and, you know, physical therapists just love hearing stories like you. It's like, well, now I can go buy a timeshare now that we got all these elk hunters trying to carry 100-pound packs. Because exactly. But some percentage of them are going to have a really bad injury. Yeah. Or and some, some long-term effects from it that when you're mm -hmm. 35, you might not notice. You know, you're sore. Right. Uh, we work out. I, I stay in shape year-round to be able to do that. To be able to pack heavy loads but there is a point where no amount of working out is going to allow you to sustain that kind of weight over four and a half miles i mean at some point you're going to reach a limit where you've broken down to the point where it's just sheer will and determination that's carrying you and yeah working out gets you a little farther and it makes it a little more comfortable but it, there becomes a point where you're doing damage. Like your body is yeah. doing all it can to keep from injuring itself and it's not comfortable and it's, it's not smart. And you think, well, you know, I'm going to punish myself over a long distance here and that's going to build endurance and stamina. And 
yeah, there's, there's something that can be said about working out for that, but there's also something that can be said that you can't train for something like that. And your body is not going to, uh, handle something like that without some residual effect at some point yeah. down the line. That's, I, I agree a hundred percent with that statement. And as somebody who's older than you, I'm starting to realize those residual effects and I've never done anything <laughs> that foolish to that degree. Uh, but even the, the heavy packouts I've had, I am, I feel the residual effects from it. Uh, yeah. It just, so at this point, I'm like, you know what? There's a, the old song, I ain't got nothing but time. <laughs> when it when it comes to packing out an elk, I ain't got nothing but time. Yep. I, 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 I am not going to risk a serious injury. And uh, I just, I, I get it. I, I completely understand it. You know, if you can do it and you're young, you're like, oh yeah, I'll, I'll do that. But certainly at this point in my life, or if you're someone who doesn't have the, the time or allocation of priority or, you know, whatever you want to say to work out every day, like you do, you know, if the desk jockey, like me, you know, the accountant tried to do that, he wouldn't even make it up that first ridge. He would have hurt himself going down <laughs> to that ridge. So, you know, you, you just, you got to be aware of what your body is able to do. Yep. Because not and not, not only able, but, you know, because your body's able to do a right, lot. Right. You can push it to do incredible right. things, but mm -hmm. there's, a, there, there's a line. And I think that's the, the point of this whole episode is there is a line where the trade-off isn't worth it you know, and, and I think it's important for, for those who are listening that are 28, 30, 32, 34, you know, you're in great shape and you can do these amazing things, but there's going to be a point where you look back and think I probably should have maybe, you know, maybe shuttle the load, maybe shuttle that yeah. heavy load, make two trips on the steep part and then try to do, you know, the heavy stuff on, on another part or something. And so, uh, don't wait till you get older and, and start having some issues. Uh, be smart now. And, you know, yeah. part of that smartness is break the load up, make, make more trips with less weight and uh, don't try to, to he-man it all out in one trip with two guys. Yeah. So, so that's the, the point. And uh, until next time, I guess. I'll see you guys on the next ridge or mountaintop or wherever the elk are bugling.